Welcome to the Sister C Podcast. My name is Joelle and I'm a licensed therapist who is committed to fighting the stigma of mental illness. Each month, I will talk to one of my favorite sisters who has lived experience or expert insight about today's most important mental health issues. We are about to break down today's topic and provide you with some candid and practical mental health advice. It's been a while. <laughs> What's that Britney lyric again? Breaking the ice. Break the ice. <laughs> Break yeah. the ice. She's like, it's been a while. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally how the song goes. <laughs> I know I shouldn't have kept you waiting, but I'm here now. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Sister C podcast. I have basically been minding my business this year. I have not done an episode in the last I think six months or so. But in that six months, I have been basically doing group therapy, group programming. Um, I've taken on some practicum students. I've opened up a new office. And this is a very special episode that I'm doing with my practicum students about a topic that is very near and dear to all of our hearts. That is codependency. I did talk a little bit about codependency in episode three, Don't You Know That You're Toxic? But um, in this episode, we're going to go in a lot more depth about codependency. Really, you can consider this episode kind of like three case studies of codependency as the three of us all struggle with patterns of codependence. And we will also be discussing a couple of related topics, including attachment theory and trauma bonding. So without further ado, please welcome my guests and students, Rochelle Evers and Bianca Rain. We have been working together over the last two months or so. We have done a number of projects together. One of those is actually a group with the same name as this podcast called Codependence Are Us. You can expect us to be basically oversharing about our lives and our experience working together for the next hour. It's going to be a treat, to say the least. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Rochelle. Start with you. Hello, Joelle. Thank you for having me. Um, I've been wanting to get on this podcast. Actually, I've been wanting to do a podcast forever. So this is going to be the first of many, I feel. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I'm a student at Mount Royal, my second year of social work. So this is my final practicum. Um, I currently work as a support worker in harm reduction uh, for the Sharp Foundation. It's a permanent supportive housing. Mm -hmm. How has your practicum been going so far? So some experiences... I've had through this practicum, um, information overload, you have so much to offer and like being hands on with the supervision has been like real privilege. And that I find that the education I learned in my semesters have been really useful here. We created this group off of a framework we were taught in school in the fall. And then me and you kind of started looking at grant proposal ideas and also learned how to do program design in the winter semester. So it's really relative to what we're what we're, what I learned in school, I guess. So glad to have you. How about you, Bianca? Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? So my name's Bianca. I'm a student at MRU. I'm in my second year of social work. However, this is my first practicum. So I've actually been in a lot of classes with Rochelle. She did mention the group class that we did where we aced our group project, by mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I'm also a recreation therapist at a senior's home. And that kind of relates to my experience in practicum right now because I'm allowing myself to kind of experience new opportunities when it comes to social work. Mm. And I'm also learning a lot of different therapy techniques. And yeah, it's just been a great time. Joelle has so much information to give us. (laughs) (laughs) 
just to bounce off Rochelle again there, it's definitely information overload. <laughs> oh my God. But it's good to have all of this new information and I really appreciate it. Mm. We're very lucky. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know what? The feeling is definitely mutual. I also would say that I'm very lucky to have both of you as practicum students. It's interesting. Spectropsychology did start out as a clinical practice or a therapy practice, but you know, as it has evolved, it turns out that we are doing more social work and you guys actually being here has kind of moved us into that realm a little bit more. So mm-hmm. thank you for that. Yeah. Why don't I start out by asking you, what have you learned about codependency throughout your practicum experience? For me, I learned that it's that there's trauma involved. Like it comes, like these behaviors come from a place of trauma. I mean, I understood dysregulation. I learned about in school, like our central nervous system's kind of response in moments of, you know, being triggered from traumas. And that can affect how we behave and what we say. And I've been codependent my whole life. That's something I learned. I kind of thought it happened, started at a certain time. No, doing all this research and, and literally talking about it's like for two months now, it, it's been evident my whole life, and that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah. So you basically learned that you are codependent, that codependents are us. <sighs> yes. I mean, I, I identify <laughs> as in recovery right now, but mm-hmm. yes, um, I have been since forever. Since right. I can remember, yeah. Yes. Well, I'm glad that, you know, this practicum experience brought you that clarity. Mm-hmm. How about yourself, B? So something I've learned about codependency is that I'm in a codependent relationship. I've been in them in the past, but I'm in a healthier relationship right now. However, I've now been able to identify that this is still codependency Mm -hmm. and I'm willing to admit it now. (laughs) Yes. You know, what I like about your insights is that it kind of tells us, and something that we'll kind of flesh out in this podcast, is there's no one-size-fits-all solution to overcoming a pattern like this. You know, you can absolutely, you know, be in a codependent relationship and, you know, both be doing your best to overcome this pattern. Thank you for that. Let's start with a very basic definition of codependency. Like I said, we will be kind of getting into our specific stories and kind of going into a lot more detail. But as a basic definition, codependency is basically an extreme focus outside of oneself. Or another way that we could say it is a need to be needed. It tends to be linked to, you know, a childhood that was chaotic, where we basically had to focus outwardly in order to meet the needs of people around us in order to have our own needs met. What do you guys think of that definition? Does that kind of encompass codependency? (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a couple of lenses to look at this through. Let's start with where codependency, the term codependency came from. Codependency was first discussed in AA or Alcoholics Anonymous. People who are family members or loved ones uh, of people who are struggling with alcoholism were often seen with these patterns of codependency. If you think about it, it's like when you're a family member or a loved one of someone who struggles with alcoholism, it makes sense that you have to be kind of focused outwardly and focused on them for the relationship to work at all. I sometimes even look at codependency like a relationship addiction. When someone struggles with addiction issues, it basically means that they can't stop engaging in a certain behavior. The key thing about addiction is you can't stop even though you would like to stop. 
So with codependency, it's like, it feels almost like you can't stop this pattern or you can't disengage from this pattern, even though obviously you want peace. The other thing that I like to look at when it comes to codependency is attachment theory. Half of people have a secure attachment and about half of people have an insecure attachment. People who have a secure attachment have the ability to form and sustain healthy relationships, which usually comes from having warm and responsive caregivers in the earliest years of life. However, insecure attachment styles basically come from having you know, emotionally erratic, punitive, unpredictable caregivers, and it affects our ability to have healthy relationships. And it's a huge factor within, you know, relationship issues. Coming at it from a perspective of trauma, trauma just means that we went through an experience or a set of experiences that we weren't able to emotionally process. And so what that does is it almost causes you know, that experience to be lodged in our subconscious mind, basically trying to protect us from, you know, that trauma happening again. You're almost kind of reliving your past when you're trying to meet everyone's needs in order to have your own needs met. So now that I have kind of explored those three main theories, which one resonates with you the most? So PTSD resonates with me the most. I think codependency really comes from trauma and past experiences. And like you said, reliving is but PTSD, you know, one of the main things of PTSD is, you know, reliving these past experiences. Mm -hmm. I find myself reliving past memories, not only from my childhood, but also from past toxic relationships. For example, I'll have these nightmares about abuse from that relationship, which kind of connects to why I'm so hypervigilant when it comes to new relationships. Mm. My current relationship, when we started dating, I would have this underlying anxiety that my current boyfriend would exhibit the same behaviors as my ex, mm. which is why I'm so hypervigilant about who I'm with and, you know, just making sure that I'm going to be okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Kind of putting up those walls. When we've had kind of uh, repeated trauma happen or when it, trauma happens super early, it's almost like we just tend to relive everything in our lives. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but do you almost relive mistakes that you made the day before or things that happened last week as well? Oh, all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, so it's kind of like a, a traumatized state of mind in a sense, mm -hmm. which newsflash 70% of Canadians have drama. So how about yourself, Rochelle? It's all relative to me. Because I'm not like in an intimate relationship, I do look at my friendships. I use them as like my own case studies to like uh, observe my behavior and my feelings and my reactions. So my attachment style still shows up. I'm conscious of it, so I'm working through it and I understand what it is now. So that's helpful. The addiction piece, obviously, grew up as a child alcoholic, they say. So I'm my father was an alcoholic. I ended up having my own issues over the years as well. And trauma, of course, like the complex trauma, because there was many different kinds and at many different times in my life, unfortunately, that I do relive emotionally, sometimes have anxiety about it. And obviously now I avoid a lot of it. So mm. I try, I'm trying not to. It's what this therapy and practicum is helping with. So <laughs> yes, absolutely. I can understand what you mean about this practicum helping with that. We definitely deal with a lot of situations that would be triggering, absolutely. We literally have a group of, of fellow codependents, <laughs> so I can understand why you say that. So really, your answer is all of the above. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, with these three theories, it's not like attachment explains everything, or trauma explains everything, or addiction explains everything. It's kind of like the three of these things together explain everything. Mm, exactly. So what I would like to do now is provide a checklist of symptoms or characteristics 
that are typical of people who have this pattern of codependency. Like you mentioned, Rochelle, codependency is not something that is just seen in romantic relationships. It's really something that we can actually see in kind of any close relationship, close mm. friendships. Even sometimes we can see these patterns at work. <laughs> and so some common traits of codependency include denial, basically where we deny our own needs and deny our emotions, low self-esteem, control, um, having weak boundaries, not being able to say no, people-pleasing, a loss of identity, not really knowing yourself or knowing who you are or knowing what you like. Resentment can also be a common one. It tends to be the case that we end up in relationships with people who are more self-focused and, <laughs> and a little bit more on the selfish side of things, and so resentment is quite common as well. Which of these traits of codependency stand out to you? Do you feel like perhaps you identify with some of these traits and perhaps these traits might let you know that you're codependent or that you're not codependent? Although, spoiler alert, we already kind of told everyone we're codependent. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I've had so many different kinds of codependent dynamics over my life that they've all shown up in different in a different form or in a different way in a, in a different dynamic. But I'm going to speak to like the loss of self-identity thing, um, I used to kind of go relationship to relationship since I was literally 16 years old. I didn't really have time to develop my own because I would just cling to the other person so much. Honestly, I really recognized this in my last relationship where I realized when we were dating that he was the only person that was in my like stream of but like messaging he was the only person i was texting for like a year going in with the the low self-esteem like if my partner wasn't naturally giving me what i needed then i felt that maybe i didn't deserve it even if i hadn't expressed to them out loud in a way or manner that they could understand yeah so low self-esteem loss of self-identity for sure resonate with me mm, yes and i think you also spoke to quality that i didn't speak to yet it's, it's like that you're overly loyal to someone you said you hadn't messaged anyone else but this one person for a year well you you get so like immersed in that relationship that like you get so immersed in that relationship that you you don't you almost not care about anybody else but you put them their needs above yours so much and where are they and what are they up to and like you honestly don't look outside that relationship you drop friends you lose friendships like mm -hmm. everybody just kind of falls off and that person becomes your world and that's like not healthy but very codependent yeah a definition that bianca and i talked about one day is codependency is a pattern of abandoning yourself in order not to be abandoned by others speaking of bianca based on the traits that i described and what you know about codependency can you tell us why you know that you are codependent doing all this research throughout these two months we kind of were able to find these common traits that aren't necessarily like the distinct traits of codependency. There's a lot of them that I've identified with. For example, caretaking is a huge one. I'm always the one taking the caretaker role. I'm often always trying to make sure that my partner is well taken care of. I'm often making sure that my friends are well taken care of. And it gen genuinely feels like their wellness is fully my responsibility. Mm. Yeah. And with that being said, I also have really weak boundaries. If someone asks me something that I'm not very comfortable with, I'll still say yes. So this can happen in my relationships, this can happen in my friendships, this can happen at work. It happens at work too much. Mm. <laughs> and then another one that I really identify with, and this is kind of the main reason why I think, or I know <laughs> I'm codependent, is control issues. I always want to be the one in charge of something. 
And when things don't go my way, I usually get frustrated, and my frustration leads to anger, which is another <laughs> element of codependency. So my anger is usually something that impacts my relationships, because it'll lead to fights, it'll lead to, you know, me saying something later on. It'll lead to me saying something that I'll regret later. Mm. Sometimes I'll throw a tantrum and later feel embarrassed about it and anxious about it. So these are kind of the main ones that mm. I identify with the most. These are really good examples of codependency. How about you, Joelle? How about me? Well, wait a second here. Who's the host of this episode? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're a codependent, Joelle. Join the party. Yeah, right? Okay. The traits that I identify with the most, absolutely caretaking. You know, I have a relationship that's kind of new where I'm finding that I'm wanting to caretake for this person and this person isn't letting me caretake for them. And it is actually making me feel like this person doesn't care about me because they won't let me put their needs first. <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah, so basically caretaking has been a big one. I also have struggled to say no, you know, throughout the course of my life. I've always been kind of um somebody who always says yes. Only in recent years after becoming a therapist do I find it easier to say no, and it's still a struggle. But I would also say um anger just like Bianca was saying because it's like, you know, you give and give and give so much to a relationship and sometimes, you know, just there's a time that you do have a need and you do want the person to show up for you mm -hmm. like you've shown up for them a hundred times. Mm -hmm. and they don't can just lead to you know being angry and stewing yeah that's really general disappointment <laughs> yes yeah. exactly and so to kind of you know summarize these traits i am going to provide a link uh within the description of this episode to codependency anonymous website where it summarizes all of these common characteristics that we talked about into five categories as i promised we're going to go into some more depth with this attachment stuff there are basically three different attachment styles that are considered insecure attachment. I like to look at it as a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, we have our anxious preoccupied individuals. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have our dismissive avoidant individuals. So people who have an anxious preoccupied style crave intimacy and regulate themselves through other people and reaching out to other people. And you could say that they even over rely on co-regulation they over rely going to others to soothe them essentially so anxious preoccupied people are very much focused outwardly and it kind of really corresponds with this concept of codependency people who have an anxious preoccupied style tend to have had an emotionally erratic parent or caregiver or even just a chaotic environment growing up on the opposite side we have people who are avoidant dismissive avoidant is the official term they almost fear intimacy on this kind of conscious level i guess they over rely on self-regulation mm -hmm. they grew up kind of in a more punitive or even with other dismissive avoidant caregivers it kind of looks like they don't really want intimacy or that they're afraid of intimacy in their adult lives. And then we have a, a style in the middle called fearful avoidant, which is a combination of the two, wanting intimacy with others, but also fearing intimacy with others. And sometimes it's even referred to as a disorganized attachment style. And people will actually tend to go back and forth. They have actually a consistent pattern of being inconsistent with their attachment. So this can basically result in um, core wounds. So we talk a lot about kind of 
core wounds and unconscious programming when it comes to attachment styles and really when it comes to overcoming our earliest traumas. This basically means deep-seated beliefs that we have about ourselves that we form in the earliest years of life, like honestly, before the age of five, even probably earlier than that, like before the age of three, we develop some of these core wounds. So for the anxious preoccupied person, who might have a chaotic caregiver or somebody who is intermittently available, they would have the core wound of, I'm abandoned, I'm alone, I'm not good enough, I am unworthy, or just simply that they can't trust. And they almost have so many negative associations with caregivers uh, who weren't able to meet their needs or who rejected them when they were vulnerable. Based on these in-depth descriptions of these attachment styles. Which attachment style do you think applies to you the most? And how is it impacting your current you know, relationships in adulthood? Let's go with Rochelle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is the thing with everything we've learned so far. Um, my perception of myself has changed a lot, has evolved. Um, I Most of my life identified as the anxious preoccupied type. Not most of my life, like literally until last couple of weeks <laughs> um but the evidence always points to emotionally disorganized when you look at it like it's a spectrum i've been back and forth my whole life um, i might lean more towards the anxious for sure but now i'm kind of pushing towards more uh, avoidant um the, my caregiving like i grew up in a great family i'm not gonna throw my parents under the bus by any means. Um, I'm very blessed. They were very caring and almost like overbearing. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, so she was present um, physically. But emotionally, it was very, it fluctuated. So we'd get treated with a lot of love, and then she'd be passive-aggressive towards us. Or when we'd, there'd be conflict or an argument, we'd get the silent treatment for days. So like, and my dad, for example, wasn't around so much. Um, and when he was, there was really no emotional connectivity there. I got told often that I could do better or I was capable of more. I mean, I'm sure that came from a good place. Um, they were trying to maybe motivate me and tell me like they saw something in me I didn't see, but it came off as I wasn't good enough. It translated as I'm just not good enough at things. The kid didn't understand love nor the chaotic emotions involved. Presently, I still want closeness and intimacy for sure, um, but I also value my independence. And I keep, like I said earlier, I've been in codependent recovery, so I haven't really been in an intimate relationship in some time. But when the last one I was in, for example, I was still very much expressing my insecurities and worries, uh, but then I was also sending mixed signals and like pushing them away and and then running away and bolting and just avoiding the whole thing because of being scared, I guess, of, you know, the same kind of patterns repeating themselves. So, yeah, I'm sure you guys have heard the saying, if you are find yourself repeatedly in emotionally unavailable relationships, then you yourself are emotionally unavailable. Mm. And learned that fairly recently as well. And it's true. It's very true. <laughs> yes. Good yes. thing I'm doing the work now, I guess. Exactly. Your story kind of highlights an interesting facet of this fearful avoidant attachment style. It turns out, or it seems to be the case, that people with this more fearful avoidant style, as they go throughout their lives, they don't kind of cling to relationships and continue trying to be in relationships. They're actually a lot more likely than the anxious preoccupied to stay out of relationships as time goes on. Sounds about right. That sounds about right to me too. <laughs> sounds like it sounds like fearful avoidant. Yeah. For sure. Mm -hmm. How about yourself, Bianca? 
Okay, so. <laughs> so I'm still at the point where I'm trying to also kind of figure out, like, specifically pinpoint what my attachment style is. Because I identify with both anxious, preoccupied, and fearful, avoidant in different senses. Right now, I feel like I'm mostly anxious, preoccupied. However, Joelle has been saying um, otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> the evidence, you mean. The yes. evidence. Sorry, the evidence. <laughs> you know what? You kind of lay out the evidence, and, and then we can kind of process if you fall closer to the fearful avoidant or the anxious preoccupied. Okay. <laughs> I'll lay out the evidence. <laughs> so I'd often see these chaotic outbursts one day, and then another day, or even just a couple hours later, my mom would act like nothing happened, and she'd be my mom again. So this reflects in my adult relationships, because oftentimes I would try any kind of coercive strategy, any kind of manipulation tactic to keep my partner with me, mm. or, you know, get with this partner and be with them. <laughs> and then as soon as we're close, as soon as something goes wrong, just like that, I'm out. Mm. You know? Here's where it gets tricky, because now in my my most recent relationship, <laughs> when things went got bad, I stayed. Right. I didn't get to that point of, oh, things are going wrong, I'm going to push you away. I'm getting to the... I just would convince myself that they're my person. <laughs> right. Yeah, so that's where I'm stuck, because in how I'm seeing it as uh, my attachment kind of differs from relationship to relationship, and the more I mature and the more I, like, age, essentially... Because I'm still young. I'm still trying to figure out me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm old and I'm still trying to figure out me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Me too. <laughs> me too. I, I'm a therapist and I'm still trying to figure out me. Yeah, okay. so it's yeah. totally fine. <laughs> so basically, one way that you can look at this, Bianca, is it's really about the frequency with which you engage with these styles. So I think even the most avoidant of people will sometimes engage with a more anxious style here and there, but it's very few and far between. And somebody who, again, is anxious, preoccupied, very rarely do they push people away. You know, they're much more likely to cling. Maybe they might test, maybe they might pretend for a minute that they're kind of pushing someone away just to kind of see if that person, you know, will fight for them. But within yeah. like minutes, they will go right back. Yes, that sounds way more familiar. That, oh, it does? that right there, where <laughs> I'll <laughs> I'll do the thing where I'm gonna hop on the airplane, and if you don't run after me, then you don't love me anymore. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Example. Yeah. Exactly. And then and then you know the camera pans back to me, and I didn't get on the airplane. <laughs> Peeking around the corner to see if they're still there. Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It sounds like it might you might be more on the anxious, preoccupied style, but it does sound like there could be some elements of that avoidant stuff. It really just depends on how frequently. Have you ever had, you know, a relationship that you start to get close and for whatever reason you want to push that person away or you want some space from that person? Does that happen to you often other than just that little temporary testing? No. Other than that, I'm always like, I want to stay with this person forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So then, yeah, it sounds like you might be a little bit more on that anxious, preoccupied side for sure. Awesome. 
For myself, I took a little test, a little online test in preparation for today's episode. It told me that I was more anxious, preoccupied. But that's just because I am currently, you know, I kind of have a new love interest right now. And this person is definitely more avoidant. I feel like the anxious person because of how avoidant this person is. Mm-hmm. When I'm answering this little quiz, I'm answering it in relation to the, to the present. However, when I think about my relationship history... I'm definitely the one who will break up with someone before they'll break up with me. Mm-hmm. And there have been times where I have definitely had the more avoidant style where I feel like I need my space and that someone's smothering me and I can almost come to resent someone and basically not want to be near them at all, like which is so opposite of the anxious preoccupied. Mm-hmm. So I would have to say that I'm also <laughs> fearful avoidant. Right? Yeah. It's interesting because when I look kind of at the history, or if I look at my early childhood, how my attachment was formed. You know, my mother is a very warm and caring person. And I remember really having like a good relationship with her growing up and almost putting her on a pedestal and wanting to be like her even in some cases and feeling like she did attend to my needs. So I kind of see it like I had one good parent, but I also had one very abusive parent. So it's like... In a sense, that's a recipe for half the time. You know, I can turn to somebody to regulate, and half the time I cannot turn to somebody to regulate. Exactly. So, yeah, that's basically what I would say. I'm kind of in that fearful, avoidant category as well. You know, now that we've really kind of thoroughly explored this concept of attachment styles, I also wanted to go into a little bit more depth about trauma and a concept known as trauma bonding. We see a huge correlation between people with complex trauma and codependency. We were mentioning earlier how it felt like all of the above, all of the above theories seem to be, all of the theories seem to be at play. People who end up developing, you know, codependency, they do tend to fall into the anxious preoccupied or the fearful avoidance styles. But having one of these styles does not necessarily translate to being codependent. It's not exactly a synonym. Codependency is not exactly a synonym for an anxious attachment style. I think the other thing that kind of happens to someone that leads to this pattern is basically they grew up in an environment where boundaries were non-existent, where they were enmeshed with their caregivers or they were enmeshed with their families. And it might be like, okay, well, how is that trauma? Well, trauma basically just means that we cannot process an experience or set of experiences. So, you know, to a very young child who is being scolded when they make a mistake in school and, you know, uh, my failure or, you know, my natural learning moment is causing my parent to be upset with me. Or um, your parent is emotionally dumping on you and, you know, and you do something to make them feel better. These types of situations are basically causing a child to think that they are responsible for somebody else's feelings. The way that I kind of see trauma and attachment, that's kind of how I see trauma and attachment coming together to form codependency. Another word that we might use for this is trauma bonding. Does that check out with you know, your definition or what you've heard of trauma bonding, because we have talked about trauma bonding in our group. Does that seem to check out with, you know, what we've learned? And Yeah, um, one thing we didn't talk about yet here that we kind of did some research around for the codependency group was that when you're growing up in maybe a household with an alcoholic 
it could develop codependency, but as can mental illness, mm -hmm. just kind of chaos in general. Mm. And then um, you can go through the rest of your life kind of in those dynamics. And mm. that's almost like your familiar place and you're, it's not a safe space, but it's what's familiar to you and what you get used to and accustomed to and kind of what you think relationships are. And then therefore you just keep getting into these trauma bonds with people over and over again. Yes, yes, exactly. Essentially, when we have not processed trauma, it is stored in our subconscious mind. And so in the case of enmeshment in a family or, you know, a lack of boundaries in a family or, you know, being programmed to think that we're responsible for our caregivers, we haven't had the chance to process that, which, you know, what child would ever have the chance to process that? It ends up basically being stored in our subconscious mind and we go about our lives believing that to be true and even seeking relationships where, you know, we can get validation through meeting other people's needs and through making people feel good. Exactly. And, you know, to kind of add on to that, when you're in those types of relationships, like Rochelle said, it's your where you're most comfortable. Those kinds of relationships, that's where you're most comfortable. So you tend to crave those chaotic relationships, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you want that chaos. And then when you're finally in a relationship with someone who is... <laughs> neurotypical yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or secure or secure attachment. Yeah. yeah if you're you know in a secure relationship you're bored <laughs> yeah you're bored and kind of just uncomfortable because that's not what you're familiar with yes we basically will subconsciously seek out you know the version of love that we had as a child and or that chaotic feeling inside exactly so yeah sometimes the correlation is so direct like the people who we seek out as, um, you know, partners and friends and just, I guess, as loved ones in our adult lives have a lot of similarity to our parents, oftentimes. Not a lot, like all. Like, like all. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, like, there's a bit of all of it, like, if you look close enough. Yeah. Right? So, you know, to kind of summarize that into a single definition, I might offer the following as a definition. Trauma bonding is conflating chaos and even abuse with love and it's not a logical thing it's a subconscious thing that we're doing yeah yeah we wanted to go over these common signs of trauma bonded relationships and you know basically just continue telling our story and, and how we've engaged with these common signs of trauma bonding the first sign of a trauma bonded relationship is future faking Future faking just refers to the fact that somebody is falsely alluding to future plans mm -hmm. another one is magical thinking we won't be able to explain why we're in this relationship you know we'll kind of think that nobody else could possibly understand what this relationship is like justifications kind of goes hand in hand with these other traits so we'll basically lie to ourselves about it and we'll make excuses for you know why we're in this relationship or why someone's doing what they're doing we're both pointing to ourselves right now. <laughs> yes yes exactly well i want to hear all about that so, so that's our, our third sign our fourth sign of trauma bonded relationships having the same fight with somebody over and over again the next sign is hiding and not being able to share feelings. Our next sign is a fear of leaving. Just for all those reasons that I talk about, all those core wounds. And the last sign that we'll talk about is becoming a one-stop shop. We expect, or even in the relationship the other person might expect, for us to meet all of their needs. So these are kind of the main signs, or, you know, kind of seven key signs of trauma-bonded relationships. So let me ask you... 
have you been in a trauma bonded relationship before? We all start with Bianca this time. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you know me. Yes, I've definitely yes. Yes. <laughs> always, throwing them, always throwing them curveballs. <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely been in a trauma-bonded relationship. <laughs> mm. My... Haha, funny, not funny. Because and... <laughs> we're laughing. It's not really funny. Oh my uh, god. One that really sticks with me is same fight. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier in a couple of the other signs how it connects to your childhood. Mm. And as you were saying that, I realized that something I would see often as a child is when my dad came home from the oil patch, whenever because he wasn't around a lot. But whenever he was home, he and my mom were fighting about the same thing every single time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looking into my last relationship with my ex, something that would happen is that we would be having the same exact fight over and over and over again. We were together for two whole years and the scenario was always the same. The time of day was always the same. And it was the same argument. Mm. The same argument being either one of us thought that the other person was cheating. Sometimes it was true for either of us. It went both ways. However, the result was always the same. Either one of us would manipulate each other into staying. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And this kind of connects to the other one that I kind of want to speak to, which is justification. After having these huge fights, I would always tell my super close friends, this is what happened. Like, I'd always update them as soon as the fight was over. They'd be like, okay, so did you finally break up with him? You know, after the fifth time that this has happened. Mm. (laughs) And I was like, and I'd always say, no, this time I swear he's changed, Mm. you know? So with justification, it's just me constantly telling my friends that my ex has changed, my ex is going to be better, this time is different, while also simultaneously convincing myself. Mm. Which is why I was stuck for so long. This was two whole years of that. (laughs) Yes, yeah. It kind of goes hand in hand, having the same fight over and over again. And, you know, how do you remain in a situation like that? By justifying why it is that you're dealing with that. Exactly. (laughs) Absolutely. I remember when you were going through that, actually. I was one of those friends that would just look at you and be like... Girl, but like, it was hard to watch it for sure. Oh yeah, I bet. Yeah. (laughs) And which, I mean, I can relate because again, again, I'm sorry guys, but I can relate to all of these examples Mm. because again, they've all shown up in one relationship or another, if not all, honestly, like these things are all so relative and like so interconnected, but I'll speak to like hiding feelings, for example, Like, I grew up in, like, in a disorganized emotional kind of environment, so I didn't really know, honestly, what love was, what my feelings were, when they were true to me, when I even, you know, is this love? What is love? What does it look like? So maybe part of the reason I hid feelings is because I didn't understand them. So I would take on my persons as a codependent. I'd be like, oh, well, if they're feeling this, then so am I, I guess. Like, if they're unhappy, I guess I'm unhappy, or vice versa, and... I wouldn't want to scare them off by expressing mine. If I if I felt a certain way that was contri- contradicting to theirs, I probably wouldn't say anything because I didn't want to scare them off. The fear of abandonment piece. Mm. So then there's the other side as well, like a fear of leaving. So, you know, the codependents need to be needed. Like, I honestly believed that I couldn't be okay without them. That's why I went from relationship to relationship for so many years. Like, I just felt like I needed someone, probably not that person, which is why I'd eventually bail and on to the next, but like someone, I needed somebody. 
And if I did eventually, you know, maybe instead of saying something, I would act out in these dynamics to make them leave me. Like you mentioned, Joelle, you would kind of make them dump you or you would dump them before they would dump you or whatever. Yeah. So I'll also speak to fear of leaving. It goes that way as well, where I would just feel to the point that I would like need them around. Like I've been in relation, went from relationship to relationship because I honestly felt that I needed somebody else. It might not have been the person in front of me, which is why I would eventually end up bailing on them um, or doing or acting out and making them leave me. Um, it's the same thing. It just looks different. <laughs> and then in that way, I'm just creating my own self-fulfilling proph- prophecy of me being unworthy or unlovable and obviously confused. To this day, I'm unsure how to engage in conflict in a healthy way, uh, which is helpful that I'm staying in the shadows. But I wor- I'm working on it with my friends, for sure. But... This is true. I'm one of those friends. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, these trauma dynamics, these trauma bonds can come up in friendships, too. And they can... Mm-hmm these codependent dynamics and these attachment, all these behaviors come out in any kind of close, intimate friendship relationship. That reminds me in one of our groups, you know, something that was talked about was how are our trauma bonded relationships just trauma? Like, is this negative or are they Mm. actual relationships? You know, (laughs) good question. Yeah. So what do you think? Do you think that you can have a trauma bonded relationship and it can be salvageable It can be a good relationship. I believe that self-awareness is everything. Mm -hmm. So, like, honestly, if all of these things are on the table, like, now I have more knowledge, so I feel like my next relationship has a lot more hope, honestly. (laughs) Mm. Um, But I feel like if the awareness is there and the open conversations or you're recognizing your behavior, be it a negative attachment thing or uh, a trauma behavior or just anything codependent, any codependent Mm -hmm. trait... Like, you can work on it if you catch it and you address it and you work through it, then, yeah, that I feel like you can be, for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's God, similar. I hope there's hope for us, you guys. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Of course, of course there is. We see people heal from codependency and related issues all the time, and I'm always so inspired when I see that in clients, you know? I really like this point, though, is codependency all bad? Is trauma bonding all bad? You know, because some people offer definitions of trauma bonding that it's like you basically share the commonality of having trauma and you bond over that. (laughs) And that's okay. And that's for some of us who've had trauma, that's almost important. You want someone to understand kind of what you've been through and be able to have those conversations on a level that you feel safe because they've kind of been there or whatever. But at some point that isn't necessarily healthy though right if that's the only thing that you guys are bonded to if that's the only thing if that's the only thing though Mm. however if it's you know you've started your relationship off that trauma and you know grew it from there great job Mm. (laughs) yes exactly i think that's a good way of looking at it it's like you know these different patterns can be present but as long as there is a connection beyond these patterns You know, it's not just kind of triggering our wounds of abandonment and, you know, this cocktail of fear chemicals and bonding chemicals. If it's like, no, there's something else beyond that. You know, there's, um, you know, a soul connection or there's um, commonalities or we want the same things in our lives. Mm. That's a really good point. It's because we don't want to say if you have any of these signs in your relationship, 
dump them. <laughs> yeah, no. No, it's not, no. Necessarily, it's not necessarily the case. Cause, because Joelle said, like, 70% of us have trauma. Like, for real, we do. So, like, most people have some sort of probably trauma bond in their relationship, some dynamic, or it shows up, might not stay, but, like, mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. Do you want to speak to some uh, trauma bonds, Joelle, from yes. your personal experience? I guess since you're putting me on the spot, I didn't have anything prepared, but um, let me think about it. No, I'm just kidding. So, yeah, you guys talked about um, some of the common signs that I just mentioned, but there are a couple other signs that I felt like were really prominent within even my last relationship, my last, I guess you could call it a romantic relationship. A situationship? Situationship, exactly. (laughs) I basically um, moved to France back in 2016 for a year, spent a year abroad. And I ended up doing that with this guy that I was trauma bonded to. (laughs) So, you know, I'm so glad I did it. This is actually a good example too of good reason for engaging in that relationship. But there were a lot of these trauma bonded patterns present as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if actually I had to redo it again, I would redo it again. But there were some particular signs that were problematic within this relationship. So... One of them was um, magical thinking. He's not out of the closet. I think he's still not out of the closet. And I basically thought, it doesn't matter. We just have this connection. There's just so much chemistry. There's We had really good sexual chemistry. Mm-hmm. But really, if we were to try to get along kind of outside of that context, like we were not really compatible. We really weren't people who would be friends if it wasn't for having that chemistry. Mm. You know what I mean? So uh, I was kind of thinking, well, I've never felt anything like this before. And clearly this person is not out of the closet still, but I still engaged in some magical thinking as to, you know, almost a little bit of justification too, (laughs) as to, you know, why I was in that relationship. There was a little bit of future faking. Usually we talk about future faking being from, I wouldn't say he would identify as codependent necessarily. He would have been a little bit more of that avoidant style. And Mm -hmm. I would say he's a little bit more on the narcissistic side personally. But I basically future faked myself and um, thought maybe there could be a future with him in some way, despite all the odds working against us. I guess those are kind of the signs. It's really magical thinking, future faking, and I guess justifications as well. So now that we have really kind of overshared and... (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. And explored these particular patterns in quite a bit of depth. Now I wanted to move on to some practical advice. Let me start out by asking you both, what practical advice do you have for people who are finding themselves in codependent dynamics? Oh, like I kind of mentioned before, the self-awareness piece is huge. So if this is something that you, like you heard something today that resonates with you and you're like, oh, maybe I should do some extra reading up on this to kind of see how I can work on it, I do recommend it. That way you can recognize the kind of insecure attachments when you get them, the trauma bonds when you have them, and know how to go forward in that area. Um, also listen to your body like as someone with trauma like your central nervous system will engage when you're in a in a trauma situation or in a unsafe place when your body feels unsafe you don't need to run like maybe take a time out and examine it the the discomfort is somewhere you need to sit in not run away from Mm -hmm. um trust your gut instincts when it comes to people and how you feel around them, how they make you feel about yourself when you're around them. 
Someone who's worthy of your time and your love and your attention will listen to you and be patient with you and compassionate with you. Outside of that, go to therapy. Mm. <laughs> go to therapy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think I really like what you said there about listening to your emotions and getting in touch with your emotions. Our subconscious mind will communicate this stuff to us through our emotions. So, you know, all the stuff that we're talking about, this really early programming, you know, the implication of trauma, all has to do with our emotions. And that's really kind of like we have to get our, almost like our, you could say our conscious mind and our thoughts in line with our emotions and our subconscious mind. And the thing about emotions too, like I, I brought up, I think a couple of times now, like not knowing how to articulate your emotions, because that's, that's a struggle for a lot of people to really understand what they're feeling. Mm. So your body feels like what emotions are is, is a physical sensation. So pay attention. What I meant by pay attention to that is where is it in your body? Like what is your body feeling exactly? And that can help you narrow down exactly what the feeling is. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And with a little bit of therapy, you can understand what those emotions are actually trying to tell you. Mm-hmm. How about yourself, Bianca? What is your practical advice? Okay. Well, this one is so common and everyone has probably heard this before. Communication is key. Key. Oh my gosh. It is key. Mm, I never Communi- heard that. Yeah, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that means. What? Yeah. <laughs> Communicating with your partner is so important. Um, so when talking about recognizing red flags, if you see a red flag in your partner, don't ignore it. Acknowledge it and have them hold themselves accountable. It's very important in, the, in you know, more secure relationships. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I'm in a, in a perfectly secure relationship. That's why I said mostly. <laughs> <laughs> You're working on it. No, I- I'm working on it, but it's better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and another thing is establish a sense of self. Mm. You want to be able to separate yourself from your partner. Mm, and yes. I'm definitely guilty of this. Rochelle and Joelle can... Call me out. Yes. You can call me on this 100%. Oftentimes, when you're in a codependent relationship, you'll, you'll like, feed off of your (laughs) partner's emotions. And it's all of a sudden what they're feeling, that's exactly what you're feeling. Mm, Exactly. (laughs) Um, So it's really important to kind of work on yourself. And if you need that space from them, you know, like Rochelle said. Yes. Take a break. Um, not necessarily like don't take a break from the relationship. No, not like, like Ross on Friends. Exactly, you guys, not a break. Yeah, but like <laughs> we don't have to fight about it right now. We can take five <clears throat> minutes or an hour or you know whatever it is that you feel you need. But like exactly, yeah. Something like that I do when I'm frustrated with my partner is what we'll do is we'll literally go into separate rooms for a couple of minutes, breathe, and then regroup. <laughs> mm, nice. <laughs> yeah. So just taking that space for yourself and remembering that you are your own person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love, I love that. And I think both of those pieces of advice go hand in hand. We kind of need to know who we are in order to communicate what we want in a relationship. <laughs> yeah. right? And really, that's one of the first things that I talk to clients about when I do work on communication skills with them. It's like the first thing is, what is my objective? What do I want accomplished here? Mm-hmm. How important is that person's needs? And how important are my needs? You know, if we're really kind of recovering from codependency, 
we are going to put our needs first a lot more often. But sometimes, yes, we can't put the other needs first, the other mm -hmm. person's needs first. Um, but we need to almost change that ratio. Because I think for those of us with codependency, we much more often put the other person's needs first. Yeah, that's, that's also why communication is important. Why, you know, setting your own boundaries about when you need your needs met versus mm -hmm. when they need their needs met. Yep. It's literally about talking to the other person who needs help mm -hmm. and with what. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Well said. So, you know, really all I can do is add on to what the two of you have said. So I was kind of mentioning how the subconscious mind communicates to us through our emotions. But what we really need to, you know, be able to start working through codependency is we need to be able to have our, you know, conscious thinking mind line up with our subconscious mind and our subconscious traumas so being able to really recognize how we're feeling so what does that mean that means checking in with ourselves all day every day like we're dating ourselves like we're getting to know ourselves for the first time you know when you're dating somebody and we're codependent we're focused on the other person we're constantly asking them how they are we're you know constantly checking in with them if we haven't seen them in a long time we will sit down with them and have a good catch-up before we resume our relationship again but with ourselves it's like there's no interest in doing that mm -hmm. so you know being able to ask repetitively what emotions you're feeling and just like when you get to know someone new and you kind of get to observe their pattern over time like you know joelle likes to always talk about you know um the patriarchy and you know <laughs> it's like you want to get to know that about yourself right like what is it that i'm always thinking about what is it that I'm always wanting to do. I do an activity with clients where I kind of provide them with a big list of values. They will go through and they will kind of pick their top, you know, maybe 10 values or something like that. And then I'll get them to rate, you know, to which, to what extent, maybe a percentage or something like that, are they living their life in line with those values? You know, that can be a really great starting point as well, because those values that maybe you have that you're not living in alignment with, you can start living more so in alignment with. And this is kind of really to your point, Bianca, about how do you establish a sense of self? Well, these are some basic ways to establish a sense of self. Um, That's what my therapist told me this semester was to like, next relationship, like talk about your values in the first, within the first like five days, like narrow your top 10 down to five and like see if you guys are on the same page. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, that makes sense. Yes, yes. So, so for those of you out there who are listening and if you want to engage in an activity like this kind of right away, I would say you could look up the kind of seven areas of life. Like we have our career, we have our financial life, we have our mental life, our mental emotional life, our spiritual life, and our social life. And you could almost, you know, do that exercise that I was saying, rank, you know, these different areas of your life and decide which one you want to give energy to. We also have six human needs that you could easily look up online. So that would basically be love and connection, growth, certainty, things like that. You can kind of look into that. Freedom. Freedom, exactly. Uh, <laughs> safety, you know, all those types of things. So there's, there's several ways to kind of go about getting to know yourself. But overall, what we're looking to do is we're looking to reprogram our mind. How did our minds kind of become programmed like this in the first place? Well, kind of through kind of starting really early, and, but also through repetition through, like I said, these kind of positive associations or negative associations that um, has kind of programmed our mind. In... Like the definition of equating trauma with love? Is that what it was that you said? Well, no, just, um, you know, let's say um, a home where there's no boundaries or a relationship where there's no boundaries and then not being able to process that. So not being able to process, you know, why our parents 
emotions seem to depend on our emotions. So then we just go about our lives thinking that everyone's emotions depends on our emotions mm. and depends on what we do. And so how do we go about changing that? Well, we have to repetitiously in those moments, we have to have the awareness to see what we're doing. And instead we have to do the opposite. So for those of us with the anxious avoidant or the even fearful avoidant style, we have a tendency to basically co-regulate to over-rely on other people to regulate our feelings. So what we have to do is we have to meet our own needs. We have to soothe ourselves. We have to almost do what the avoidance would do, what the avoidant attachment styles would do. You know, this isn't about this podcast or this episode isn't about avoidant attachment style, but the avoidance would almost have to do the opposite as well. <laughs> so, yeah, so you guys have given some really good advice. You know, how do we kind of go from a surface level to addressing this at a deeper level? Basically through repetition and emotions. You know, just how just how we programmed, just how our mind was programmed in the first place. It just takes a little bit more repetition because, you know, when we're so young, our minds are so impressionable and like, I guess our, you know, our minds are just like sponges when we're younger. So we do have to work at the repetition piece as adults for sure. Yeah, that's why the DBT, so dialectical behavioral therapy, is so helpful to us codependents because it helps us regulate our emotions. Mm. Because from a place of trauma, we are not using our prefrontal cortex and thinking in logic at all. So if we can recognize those red flags and see those things come up in us that like those maybe those behaviors that we're not liking, but we, we recognize we need to stop it in its tracks and address it before it becomes dysregulation. And then you act out or all hell breaks loose. So Exactly. <laughs> so I think that brings us to the end of the episode. <laughs> That's the end of the episode. Thanks for having me, Joelle. This has been quite the experience. Yes. Well, thank you so, so much for being here, both of you. Thank you for a wonderful practicum experience. Thank you. And for being wonderful co-facilitators. Uh, codependency. Zaras. Zaras. <laughs> Grammar is not us. <laughs> we are not grammar. <laughs> Absolutely not. By the way, I guess I'll take this opportunity to officially make a plug. Um, if you are resonating with what you have heard in this episode and you believe that you are facing patterns of codependency yourself, please feel free to reach out for the next session of Codependence Are Us. That will be running as a six-week group and kind of renewing every six weeks. And you can see my contact information, you know, in the various platforms that we're looking at here. Or the various well, it's, platforms. It's six sessions, but it's bi-weekly. So they get a break in between because it is it can be heavy content for a lot of us. Make an individual session in between if you want with Joelle. Some of the other clients have done that. It's been helpful mm -hmm. to help you unpack what you've kind of figured out. Um, again, Joelle, thank you. Like this has not only been educational, it's been fun. It's been tiring and exhausting, mm -hmm. um, but mostly it's been healing and I'm just thankful I can apply this to my everyday life. So thanks for everything. Yes. And you know what? I definitely share the same sentiment. You know, I think they say that the best way to learn something is to teach something. So I've definitely learned a lot as well. I really appreciate it. So, Joelle, I'm going to ask, like, I can't believe I waited this long to say anything. What does the C stand for in Sister C? Oh, don't you know? It means Sister Codependent No More, obviously. <laughs> After everything we've learned, I freaking hope so. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to the Sister C podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you found some of our ideas to be helpful. 
If you would like to chat with me or learn more about my counseling and coaching services, you can visit my website at spectrapsychology.com. Remember, no matter where you fall in the spectrum, the Sister C podcast has your back. See you in the next one.